We're in this little letter uh, that Paul has or written to the early church at Colossae. And that church exists because they have heard the gospel. They have heard the news about Jesus Christ and it's come to them through a lad called Epaphras. And Epaphras is someone who Paul describes as this faithful minister of Christ. And, and he's gone back to Colossians after hearing it from Paul in Ephesus presumably, and just spending some time with him. And he has made known to the Colossians the, the implications and the realities of Jesus' life, of his death, of his resurrection, and how God is making peace with sinners. And, and anyone who loves and trusts in sinners, uh, anyone who kind of loves and trusts that in something more than God, you know, we hear that word like we say, oh, sinners, and people conjure up certain ideas in their heads about, well, what's a sinner? Uh, a sinner is anyone who just puts something other than God first in their life. And how God is actually reconciling and saving those people. And how Jesus is creating a, a new community, a, a new humanity in which new and transformed people are now delighting in God. Having God as supreme and superior in their lives. And then they're loving each other in new and radical and selfless ways. And Paul, we saw last week, reassures this community of that. Let's them know that uh, this is true of you guys. We know the gospel's come there because of this faith and this love and this hope that is shaping the, the, the culture and, and that of this new community there. And when Paul talks to them about their faith, it's not a not a generalized faith, not like a, an Oprah Winfrey kind of type faith. It's, it's a specific faith that's tied to the gospel and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ alone to save them and to bring them into fullness of life. That's the kind of faith that they've put their hope in. And likewise, the love that Paul talks about is so uh, significant amongst these people. It's not a generalized love. It's this unconditional love. It seeks nothing in return, and it's indiscriminate. Like, it, it doesn't pick who it's going to love. It has no uh, biases to it, no favoritisms. It's just this radically generous love uh, that, that is just radically generous with all its resources, all its time, uh, its willingness to forgive, its willingness to share uh, the burdens of all the saints, Paul says there. And that word saints we saw last week is just this shorthand way of saying people who have, uh, are the people of God. And so radical is this expression of love in this community, uh, Colossae, that Paul says it's a, it's a supernatural love. It's love of the Spirit. That's what's going on there. And this radical, different way of living kind of challenges the, the current environment and it rubs against it and it stands in contrast to the existing practices or the previous practices existing in previous ideologies and cultures and even existing in previous religious practices and and, and, and so conversations begin to say, oh, well, yeah, sure, Jesus, but what about these other things uh, that used to be? D d are they still relevant? And so there's, there's what Paul calls there's a philosophy and hollow teaching starting to shape uh, this new church. And so Paul reminds them to continue to walk in a, a manner worthy of Jesus to do that. They just got to press back into and remain faithful to the gospel. You know, you already have uh, what tells you all you need to know about God. You already have what empowers you to live in a way that, that pleases God. 
Your place in this community is not tied uh, to something you do, uh, something you can discover to your goodness or your performance, but it's tied to Jesus and his greatness and his completed work. Paul says that's, that's, what, that's how God has qualified uh, you, know, you guys, Christians, to be a part of all that he has in store for you through a relationship with Jesus. It's not something that you do, but it's, it's something that God has done on your behalf. It's not something you achieve, but something you receive. Jesus is the one who has redeemed you, Paul says, that has delivered you out of the, the chaos, if you like, of sin and a life in opposition and distance to God into this, this living hope, this kingdom, this new people. Peace closeness with God, peace with God, and, and a hope of the matchless and empowering grace of God to give you all you need to live a life that pleases God. And, and there's just this line to, to, to have joy, <laughs> to know deep joy, like to live in obedience to God is to live how you designed and to encounter joy. And then that joy just pours out in praise. That's, that's who you are in Christ. That's what the gospel has done to you. That's how Paul started this letter. Now what Paul wants to do as we move on this week in this section, and, and, and the, the whole kind of aim of it comes at the end of the passage in verse 23, is he wants to paint this picture of the supremacy and the sufficiency of who Jesus is so that Colossians, and by extension you and I as we read this, would not shift from our hope of the gospel. That's his goal, that we would not shift from the hope of that gospel. Now, trying to put Paul's description, this is what I've discovered this week, I kind of knew it was coming, uh, this description of Jesus that he has here in verses 15 to 23 into a 35-minute sermon was kind of like trying to pour the ocean into a thimble. It was difficult. Uh, and in the end, I was quite unsuccessful uh, and this is basically how far I got. <laughs> this is where we're camping today. Should make following along in your Bibles pretty easy, I think. So if you can, if you can open to Colossians 1, 15, that's all the work that you need to do today. The first thing that Paul does is that he declares that the son, he's talking about Jesus, that's the context, this, this carpenter from Nazarene is God made Visible. The Son is the image of the invisible God. And Paul repeats this claim in Philippians 2.6 and he repeats it in 2 Corinthians 4.4. So this is not an idle thought. This is not like, oh yeah, here's an idea. The writer of Hebrews also, he, he, he backs over it as well. He says of Jesus that, that, that Jesus is the exact, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. And it's as scandalous and it's as outrageous as it sounds, particularly that it comes from, in this letter, a man so profoundly shaped in Jewish thinking as, as Paul is. Like if there's one group of people on the planet uh, in history um, who, who the idea of the incarnation, the idea that God would add humanity to his divinity, that he would add mortality to his immortality, uh, 
or as the opening of John's gospel puts it, that the, the word, the logos, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have actually seen his glory, like the idea that that is plausible. If there's a group of people that thinks it actually implausible, it's the Jews. And yet, as, as Tim Keller points out in his little Christmas book, Jesus, by his life and by his claims and by his resurrection, convinced his closest followers, his closest friends, those who watched and examined and saw his life, Jewish men, and I would add one of his fiercest opponents in Paul, that he wasn't merely some edgy prophet telling people his opinion on how to find God, that he was God himself come to find us. And as he does, Jesus makes, makes the invisible God visible so that we can see the glory of God, so that we can see it exactly, so that we can see it perfectly. Jesus is illuminating, making known God's essence, his nature, his character. Uh, uh, Garland in his commentary says, Christ brings clarity to our hazy notions of the immortal, invisible God. Paul is saying in these nine words that you need look no further to know and encounter God fully than Jesus. You don't need to, to, to get into rituals. You don't need to find some secret mystical kind of experience. You don't need to, to, to get more knowledge. You don't need to reach some moral discipline, some, some moral conformity or some state. All you need to do is to know Jesus and to encounter him and trust him and believe him and have hope in the claims attached to him. The life of Jesus builds the picture that puts flesh on the invisible nature and the invisible character of God. Jesus literally is the word made flesh. The writer of Hebrews picks it up when he says in Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets, like distance, speaking through agencies. But now in these last days, he has spoken by his son, personally, present, physically. If you want to know what moves the heart of God with compassion, if you want to know what stirs up God's fierce anger, if you want to know how God feels towards us, if you want to know how God deals with human rejection of God, you just need to look at Jesus. Perhaps that's the most scandalous thing, that in Jesus, God veils his glory, humbles himself, so that people who spend their lives dreaming up ways uh, to live without him, We'll hopefully see the foolishness of that. We'll hopefully see the foolishness of that way of living. In Jesus, we find a picture of God who moves towards sinners with mercy, uh, with compassion and power at his own expense so that they might encounter God and have their hearts warmed uh, with hope in him. It's gonna like I just sort of started to think. This is why this is why I landed and only I got nine words into this um, passage, and I just started to think about well, what is that picture? What is that? How do we see that? Well, we go to the Gospels and we start reading the various things that Jesus did. And one of my favorite ones, one of my favorite places to go is John eight, and there we have this graphic and costly but very beautiful picture of the mercy of God. 
John 8 there at the beginning of that chapter, they're sprawled before Jesus in the dirt and the whole crowd that's kind of gathered to see the show that's going down or the showdown that's going down is a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, this is one of the most serious crimes against the, the fabric of, of Israel, it, the, the destroying of homes, of family. This is a serious crime. Now, setting aside the, the shady way that this woman was caught in adultery and how she became the concern of Jesus, she is guilty. Like, this woman is guilty. Some peeping Tom religious leader saw her, laid eyes on her while she was engaged in the act of adultery. So her guilt is not in question, like she needs to be punished. She's guilty. And she knows what awaits her. You can kind of imagine the fear and the powerlessness of this woman. A shameful public trial, a degrading of her reputation, and a punishment that at its most extreme is death. And now she's been thrown at the feet of Jesus, who is the invisible God made visible. And then the peeping Tom who performed the citizen's arrest questions Jesus on the law. The law of Moses commands us to stone her, you know. What, what do you say, you know, teacher? Citizen arrest dude is kind of now turned chief prosecutor. He's reaching for the top shelf he wants Jesus to go all the way and pronounce her death. And Jesus just stoops down. He writes something in the sand. It's an odd detail, and people spill a lot of ink over what he wrote, but it's the kind of detail that an eyewitness would write in, that an eyewitness would make note of. And he gets up, and he does what nobody expected him to do. He moves towards the whole situation with mercy by exposing that they the audience, everyone there, and even this woman are all in need of mercy. Not, not just the woman in the dirt, but everybody is in need of mercy. Let the one who is without sin, that is, let the one who is here, who is in no need of any mercy at all, over their life, you cast the first stone. Stones drop, everybody leaves. The only person who can do that, the only person who can throw a stone is Jesus, the sinless God-man, which means that he has the right to take everyone's life, not just hers. So he lets them drop their rocks and not commit murder and wander off and think about what he's just said, pushing towards their hearts. And he turns to the woman and he extends mercy like nobody's here to take your life anymore. I don't want to take it either. What I want to do is transform you. Go and sin no more. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to offer mercy. And out of that encounter of mercy, out of that encounter with me, God uh, made visible, go and live your life out out of that encounter. Let that encounter empower you to go and sin no more. He's not asking her to do it with white knuckled determination. He's asking her to do it out of her encounter with him, with the mercy of God. And the question is, is Jesus being soft? Is, is Jesus having double standards here? No, what Jesus is doing is he's looking down the corridor of time, 
to what Paul talks about in verse 20, the cross. That's where he will pay the price of the mercy that he extends. Sin doesn't go unpunished. He's not having double standards. He's not being soft. That is where he will make peace on her behalf. The demands of the law will be satisfied in Christ's death, not in hers. God is God. And he is a God of just mercy. And Jesus makes that quality visible. And we find that Jesus makes visible God's compassion. He's a God of compassion. That Jesus had compassion for various uh, distressed and misled, misguided people is a, is a common description throughout the gospel. Like that's, and Jesus had compassion on him. And Jesus had compassion on him. We read it again and again. Jesus' heart has moved to comfort those who experience loss or grief because of how sin kind of just tears apart everything that we love, everything that we need, everything that God designed for us to find joy in. A great visible picture of this is the scene outside the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. Lazarus has been dead for four days by the time Jesus gets there. And Mary and Martha, like, they're just kind of confused about how Jesus, who's Lazarus's close dear friend, would let this happen. But Jesus knows that he's about to raise Lazarus back to life to demonstrate his power over death like he knows that there's no mystery there's no confusion in this situation for Jesus but still what we read is that he is overcome like knowing that knowing that he's about to do something amazing Jesus is still overcome with compassionate sorrow for those who are who are weeping Jesus looks around at the crowd and he enters into the grief of the people around him we read there that Jesus wept just like two little words Jesus wept what an odd thing to note about the God of the universe. But it's the kind of thing that an eyewitness would remember and write down. He grieves with them over their loss. And it's not a sentimental grief. This grief is indignation. This is what stirs up the anger of God. Deep outrage at the chaos that sin has brought into the created order. We are not meant for death. We are not meant to be separated from those we love. It's something that moves God with compassionate anger to restore what sin has destroyed. God's compassion is not just mere sentimentality. It moves him to action on our behalf. It moves him and pushes him toward the cross. Another quality of God that Jesus makes visible is, is the omnipotence the the powerful the all-powerfulness of God of his unrivaled power and how God uses that power uh, not just to flex up and say how powerful he is but he but he uses it for our well-being not not our destruction we have been in the gospel of Luke now for kind of two years but if you can cast your mind back to chapter 8 uh, Jesus really kind of, in that chapter, Jesus really lifts the lid off of the power that he has. Like we saw him warming up in chapter 5, like he, he heals a paralytic man by telling him just to, to get up and walk, like he forgives his sin. And they go, who are you to do that? And he goes, well, I'll tell you who I am. Uh, get up and walk, brother. And then just atrophied limbs are strengthened and ligaments are remade. And the voice of Jesus, the power of that, just lets this boy walk home carrying his mat. And in chapter 8, Jesus gets busy. First, 
we find him, he kind of wakes up from a nap that he's having in a, in a sinking boat. And his closest friends are freaking out and losing their minds, think they're going to die. That's the kind of description of a situation that an eyewitness would recall. And he wakes and he just stands and with a gentle voice he tells a violent storm to stop and it does. Power over nature. And the disciples ask the question, well, well, who is this then that commands even the wind and the water and they obey him? And the answer is, well, this is the uh, invisible, omnipotent God made visible. Jesus jumps out of this boat and he's not even five meters onto dry land and he's met with a, a man possessed with demons. And we see that Jesus just restores this man who's being terrorized by these demons. In verse 26 of chapter 8, Jesus, Jesus is just there and he asks the demons for some ID. Again, like the kind of detail that an eyewitness that someone that actually saw it take place would remember. And once the, uh, the, once the playing field is established, like a, a legion of demons, like a whole gang of them, and one Jesus. Jesus just speaks and they leave like they just go off to some pigs, but they leave without causing any further harm to this man. It's not like the movies. It's not like when we watch The Exorcist and they're casting out demons and, 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 and there's this great power struggle. And in the power struggle, the person is left more banged up and wounded by the moment than, than when they started. Jesus uses his power over the spiritual world, world to bring the end of trauma, to heal and restore and not cause any more harm. And then we find Jesus heading to heal a terminally sick girl at the request of her father, Jairus. Now, not too many people get their names written and recorded in the Gospels, but this leader, uh, one of the leaders of the organized opposition to Jesus, he does get his name recorded there. Why? Why is that? Well, because what's about to happen is just so unbelievable that people are going to want to fact check it. Like, let's go on. Is that a real story? Let's go talk to Jairus. The mission, though, is interrupted by another woman who has her own medical conditions, a bleeding issue. And, and this issue has seen her exhaust all of her money, all of her dignity via the abuse and the ineffectiveness of, of the power of, of medical practices and people. And she just reaches out and touches the fringe of the garment of Jesus and, and, and she's instantly and completely healed. Like that's the emphasis. She's instantly and completely healed. And, 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 and Jesus kind of stops and all the, all the spotlights are on her and he demands nothing from her apart from publicly verifying that she is healed. His power has brought peace to her chaos, to her life of abuse and exclusion. It's not merely the healing of a physical ailment, it's the restoration of a person back into life, back into community, like she can now, you know, circulate and know and hug and, and, and take part in religious practices. She hasn't just been healed from a bleeding issue, she's been just completely restored. The power of Jesus, God made visible to bring us back into community, into life, to heal us fully. 
Meanwhile, while everyone's just high-fiving and slapping hands, news of the girl, she's died. That's like a real mood killer. But Jesus reassures Jairus, the leader of, or one of the leaders of the opposition to Jesus, and the father of this girl. He says to him, don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. But believe what? Only believe. Sounds very, sounds very modern, doesn't it? Just, ha- just have faith. Just believe. Just, you know, conjure it up and believe in what? It's about as 2022 as you get. But Jesus is not being mysterious or cryptic. He's not asking Jairus to reach inside and find some inner strength or conjure up some strange faith. Go and watch an episode of Oprah, perhaps. What he's actually saying is, just believe that the man standing before you is not just a man, not just some radical prophet, but he is the son of God. He is the invisible God made visible. Believe that. I kind of love it. We don't know much about Jairus other than he is the ruler of a synagogue. And here's what we know about that crew, that they are in increasing organized opposition to Jesus and his claims to be God. And how does Jesus, the invisible God made visible, exercise his power towards someone who's involved in that active hostility towards him? Unmerited grace. Yeah, I'm going to heal your daughter. Just believe. Not in some vague thing. In me. I don't know about you, but when I realize I'm wrong about something that I've been so strident about, I hate the feeling of facing my foolishness. Jesus is not going to just exercise his power in some vague way, some abstract way, some undefined way. He's asking, G- asking Jairus to face his foolishness about who he thought Jesus was. He is asking Jairus to believe that he is God. And he's about to extend his power toward him in grace. And when they get to his home, the wake is in full flight. There's deep grief. And Jesus reassures the crowd that this girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. It's a metaphor. She's dead. They think he's mad. And now Jesus will reveal that his power, his authority, and his care extends to even outside the, the, the mortally bound existence and into the landscape of death. And then using a phrase that a, that a little girl's mum would use, like every morning, hey, little girl, get up. It's a unique phrase. It appears nowhere else in Scripture at all. It's the kind of thing that an eyewitness would remember. Jesus recall, recalls her soul, brings her soul back, and reunites it with her dead corpse. That is the tender-hearted, no boundaries, power of God made visible in Jesus. That's what we're seeing in Jesus. Okay, one last portrait of the invisible God made visible in, in the Son, in Jesus. And where does, all this, where does all this mercy, where does all this compassion, where does all this selfless uh, power take Jesus? Takes him to a cross. Takes him to a place of ultimate rejection, of ultimate unraveling, of ultimate shame, of chaos, of all the things that he's been restoring in people 
it takes him there. All four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus record that he was crucified, and not because he was kind and not because he was merciful and selfless, but because he claimed to be the invisible God made visible. And he asked people to just believe in that, to place their hope in that, to place their trust in that. The cross is where the mercy and the justice and the grace and the wrath and the anger and the love of God all coexist in plain sight. It is the place where the judgment toward us for our foolishness and our rejection of God's uh, self-disclosure to us should have rightly taken place. Like that's where we deserve to be. And it happens in plain sight, but it is the place where God makes peace with an adulteress. It is the place where God makes peace with those who live in organized opposition to him. It is the place where, where God destroys the power of, of the chaos of sin that is brought into our lives, disease and death. It is where Jesus exchanges our foolishness and our brokenness, our sinful actions that we commit out and the sin that is committed upon us. It is the place where Jesus exchanges all of that with the life of God made visible. That's who's there. At the center of the Christian hope is a God who deals personally with our sin on our behalf so that we can find peace with God. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what he's like, how we should relate to him and how he relates to us, God has not left it a mystery. He's not left, it, left us in the dark with this. He's made himself fully known in Jesus. And we might get clues about who God is and what he's like through creation, and we can read about that in Psalm 19, and we can read about that in Romans 1. Or, or we get clues and hints about who God is throughout, through our consciousness, and you can read about that in Ecclesiastes 3.11, but they're limited and they're veiled and they're not full. But only in Jesus do we see completely and fully and physically who God is, creator, redeemer, and restorer, what God's like, a God of mercy, of compassion, of unrivaled power, and what God does with all of that. He sends his son to rescue people from the dominion of darkness, from the chaos that sin brings into our lives, and he, and he brings about reconciliation and healing and peace physically and spiritually through his death on the cross. If you want to know what God is like without any distortion, without any deception, all you need to do is look at Jesus. He is the one who has made the invisible God visible. To know Jesus is to know God fully and truly as God can be known. To know Jesus is to have our hopes shaped in mercy and grace and justice and compassion and the power of God which brings peace to our souls. And we find Jesus in the eyewitness accounts of his life in the Gospels. These are written by people who saw it take place, who wrote it down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
that we could do what? That we could go back to these stories and read them and encounter the living God and see what he's like and have our hearts warmed with affection for him. Let's pray. Loving God, this morning, how incredible is this story of God made flesh, invisible God, unapproachable light you're described as. You would set aside that glory as something that should be worshipped and demanded and, and seen and you, you would humble yourself and take on flesh walk amongst us that we might know you, see you, touch you uh, as John says you know, our, our ears have heard our, our, our eyes have seen, our hands have touched uh, you have made yourself known to us and you have made yourself known in, in, in all, all of your mercy, of your compassion and your power and how that all uh, is used to bring us back into a clear understanding of you that we, might, that we might trust you with our very lives, that we might make much of you, that we might recognize that, we, that when we have been trying to use our power and our might, we just destroy everything we touch. Sin destroys, and yet you have come to transform and renew us in your life. And our prayer this morning is that more and more we would push back into those stories, that more and more we would uh, go and seek Jesus in, in all the aspects of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.